Joshua chapter 7. We finished Joshua chapter 6 last week after three weeks studying. And uh, by the grace of God, if you guys give me an hour, I'm not going to lie to you. Full hour. If you give me a full hour, we'll get through the whole chapter 7 today. And, uh, you know, we can handle that. I'm, a, I'm aware that the mind can only handle what the seat can endure. But that is why we have nice soft seats here at Reality, because we like to preach forever. <laughs> so before we start that, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word that is before us. And Lord, for us, it's sweeter than honeycomb. It's more precious than gold and silver. It's awesome. Because in it, we discover you, Lord, and your wonderful grace and your mercy. And Lord, the text before us today is gnarly. It's pretty heavy. And yet we see just shining through it all, your incredible love, your amazing grace, and your unending mercy. And so I ask that you would highlight those things for us, Holy Spirit. As I would do my best to teach, I ask the Holy Spirit, you would highlight the grace and the mercy of God that you would please anoint me to teach and to preach and to communicate your word and that it would be so alive to us and that we would order our lives according to the things we hear today. And Lord, we already know that to do these things, we're going to need the Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, come. Just start filling your people. Start moving and working in our midst. We need you so desperately for these realities that are before us, Lord. So bless this Bible study and transform our lives for your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Well, as I said last week, we finished chapter 6, and the last verse of chapter 6 says this, verse 27. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. As we exit chapter 6, we find a very happy Israel. They've just experienced a tremendous victory over the enemy, and everything is good and wonderful there with them. Things are looking up. You know, before that, they've been wandering in the wilderness, and they had been experiencing the results of some sinful choices of their parents, and it affected them tremendously. They've been in the wilderness for about 40 years, and now they've come out of the wilderness into a good place, and things are looking up for Israel and for the people of of God. They've been used to, for several decades, defeat and weariness and dryness. And now they're beginning to experience victory and rest and fullness. Now that's a potent picture of what our Christian lives are supposed to be. Our Christian lives are supposed to be characterized by victory and rest and fullness. Amen? Come on, a little more juice from you. Amen? That is what the Christian life is supposed to be. And it's wonderful that, yes, the Lord brings us out of slavery, but then he wants to bring us into fullness. You know what I mean? He wants to bring it all the way around, and that's what he did. He brought them out of Egypt, and then he's bringing them into Canaan. And everything is wonderful as we exit chapter 6. Just glorious, the best days they've ever seen as we exit chapter 6, really experiencing the Lord and his power working in their lives. Now, things could have and things should have remained as such. Things could have, and things should have remained as such. But there's a preposition that opens the first verse of chapter 7 that denotes that there was a change. It says in chapter 7, verse 1, but the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully. 
a big change all of a sudden in the way things are going to go. But the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, from the tribe of Judah, took some of the things under the ban. Therefore, the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. Now, there's a dramatic change that comes with that word, but in chapter 7, verse 1. For us to begin to unpack this, we need to remember a couple things from last week. Number one, Israel was not supposed to take certain things from Jericho. That certainly was a normal protocol as we spoke about. They certainly, within the historical context, were deserving of the spoils from Jericho. But the Lord was doing something different and having a different plan for his people. Wanted to teach them a few things. We talked about that extensively last week. We won't belabor the point. But suffice to say that there were certain things that they were not supposed to take from Jericho. The Lord warned them that if they did, there would be consequences. Let's revisit that in verse 18 of chapter 6. It says, But as for you, only keep yourselves from the things under the ban, lest you covet them and take some of the things under the ban, so you would make the camp of Israel accursed and bring trouble on it. So they weren't supposed to take certain things. If they did, it would mean trouble for Israel. The second thing I want to bring to your mind is this fact. And we talked about this extensively last week. But the Lord's warnings are not arbitrary. Amen? The Lord's warnings are not arbitrary. He's very purposeful about this. Listen, God knows and understands and wants to communicate what is harmful to humanity. He knows and understands and wants to communicate. And he wants to communicate from a place of love and mercy and kindness from the heart of a father saying to his children who he is enamored with, my sons, my daughters, these things are dangerous for you. Stay away from these things. I know you don't understand. I know you can't see the whole picture. I know you don't fully get it. But as your father who loves you desperately and who knows, these things will be harmful for you. You see, God's heart for humanity is that we would be healthy and whole. That's his heart for you. That's his heart for me. That we would be healthy and whole, spiritually, emotionally, and physically. And so God gives us certain parameters to keep us in that place, to keep us in a good place of health and wholeness, spiritually and emotionally and physically. But we often, because of our wicked hearts and, and the input of a fallen world, we often think that, that God's just a big killjoy, you know what I mean? That he doesn't want us to have any fun, and he knows what's fun, and he doesn't want us to do it. That's often our mindset, you know. And uh, we think, you know, obeying the Lord is a bummer. These do's and don'ts, and those things are just burdensome, and they just tie me down and hem me in. Nothing could be further from the truth. And remember what we looked at last week from 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, where it says, this is the love of God. Okay, this is how we experience the love of God and reciprocate the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. That's the word of the Lord, and you need to receive it by faith. The commandments of the Lord are not burdensome. Obeying the Lord will never bring you burdens. It will bring you into a place of freedom and fullness. Can I get a witness? Obeying the Lord will never burden you. It will bring you into freedom and fullness. Haven't you discovered, as I have discovered, that what is burdensome is disregarding the word of the Lord? What weighs you down is rebellion. 
You know the Lord wants you to go here and to do this and you rebel against that and you go in the opposite direction and you find that that brings drudgery to your life. That brings a weightiness to your life and a cloud to your life. That complicates things and burdens us immensely. That's why Jesus said, come to me, everyone who's weary and heavy burden. I will give you rest. Come and learn of me. I'm humble of spirit. Take my yoke upon you. That's what the Lord said. And so contrary to what may seem intuitive to our fallen minds, there's freedom in obeying the Lord because it puts us in the place of blessing. Now, the historical account of Joshua 7 before us is the heart-wrenching record of one man who blew the word of the Lord off. Just one man who said, you know what? I'm not buying it. I see what I want, and I'm going after it. I don't care what the Lord says. And the consequences that follow. Notice what it said in verse 1. It said, the sons, plural, of Israel acted unfaithfully and took some of the things. And then it says at the end of verse 1, therefore, the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. So the Lord is dealing with them corporately, but in reality, it was just one guy that took the things and just his family that was in him with that. But it was just one guy, but the Lord is dealing with a whole. Just one guy, but the Lord says, all the sons of Israel. Two lessons emerge from this. The first one is this. We have a tremendous individual responsibility within the community of faith. We have a tremendous individual responsibility within the community of faith. Like it or not, we are connected one to another. Very profoundly, we are connected spiritually one to another. We are blood brothers and sisters, so to speak, by the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? We are very connected in the Lord, more than I think we ever realize. The Bible lays it out in no uncertain terms. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that we are members of one another, members of the body of Christ. We're to be knit together in love. Jesus Christ is the head, and then us put together as the body. Now, like any other body, if one part is suffering, it's going to affect other parts. And if one part is prospering, it affects other parts. And that's what it says in 1 Corinthians 12. If one of us suffers, we all suffer. If one of us rejoices, we all rejoice. And so there comes this reality that we fight and we kick against because it's, it, there's such a tremendous responsibility with it. But that we are members one of another. We are spiritually connected by the Spirit of God and the blood of Jesus Christ. And what I do, do what I do, yeah, what I do affects you. And what you do affects me. We don't like it that way. We really don't like it that way. We'd rather be able to sin in a vacuum, wouldn't we? And yet we see that when there's sin in the camp, which is what happens here, it has an adverse effect on the body of Christ, and we bear a responsibility in that. The second lesson that emerges here is that our sin often radically affects those that we love most. We're going to see that because of Achan's sin, his whole family loses their lives in this chapter. That's a radical truth. And you know that the Lord is the one who redeems all things. And he makes all things brand new. And that's what I hope to highlight for us today is the grace and the redemption and the renewing work of Jesus Christ. But we cannot escape the truth, Christian or non-Christian, that our sin and our rebellion 
so often has a radical adverse effect on the people that we love most. The people that we most want to be whole and well and okay are the ones that get messed up when we get entangled in sin. Now let's watch this unfold and deal with it. Verse 2. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near beth Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. So the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Look, we don't need to have a bunch of people go up there. Just about two or 3,000 men need to go up to Ai. Don't make all the people work hard and go up there, because the men of Ai are few. So they go out to spy out the land like they've done many times before and, and see what they're up against. And, and it's a city called Ai, and we're told in chapter 8 that it's a population of about 12,000 people. Just want to point out for you on the map where they're going to to just orient you a little bit. So uh, this is Israel right here. Okay, here's the Mediterranean Sea. Up north we have the Sea of Galilee. Down south we have the Dead Sea. This shows us where those various people groups were in the land that Israel was to displace. Over here was the region of the Philistines. That's a modern-day Gaza Strip. Here's the Perizzites, the Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and the, and the Hivites. Now, this is the Jordan River that flows between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. The children of Israel crossed over from the east side right about here. And they camped, they set up camp at this place, which is called Gilgal, just two miles from Jericho, which is right there, which is, of course, their first conquest, where they're just coming off that great victory. Jericho is in the low-lying regions of this valley here leading to the Dead Sea. I, which is up here, is up in the hill country, some 13 miles to the west, a higher region. What they will eventually do when they do take I in chapter 8 is divide Israel in half. This is called the central campaign. Then they will have a southern campaign and subsequently a northern campaign and begin to occupy the land. But they're moving 13 miles east to this geographical location known as I. And as I said, it's a place of only about 12,000 people. And so they look at it and they say, listen, this is nothing for us. You saw what happened at Jericho. This is nothing for us. No problem. Joshua, here's a recommendation to spies. Just send up two or 3,000 people. We ought to be able to take them. Here's what I think is happening at this point. I think that they're beginning to develop a little too much confidence in the flesh. What I don't see happening is any prayer right here. I don't see the leadership praying. I don't see the spies praying. I don't see or read about anyone stopping and saying, Lord, what should we do? Because you remember that to take Jericho, the Lord had some very unique ideas about how that ought to be done. And he very much asserted his authority as the ruler, the commander of their military forces. And now they're saying, you know what, we got this one handled, no big deal. And so often in the Christian life, we have our greatest defeats after experiencing some of the most profound victories. Does anybody ever experience that? I do all the time experience these great moves of God and this wonderful victory and the power of God. And then where it often leaves me and my sinfulness is in a place of self-confidence. And I just run off and get ahead of the Lord. And that's exactly what they're doing here. They're getting ahead of the Lord. And they're saying, no big deal. You know, we can handle this in and of ourselves. Now, we can't fault them too bad for thinking that they could take a large number of people with a small number of people because the Lord had told them previously that they indeed would do that when they got to the land. I want you to see those promises. Go to Leviticus 26. Keep a finger right here in Joshua, but go to Leviticus if you would. 
Now, this is before they enter into the land. The Lord speaking to them through Moses, giving them some guidelines and, and some insights as to what would happen when they take the land. Look what it says in verses 7 and 8. Leviticus 26, verse 7. It says, you're going to chase your enemies, and they will fall before you by the sword. Five of you are going to be able to chase a hundred, and a hundred of you are going to be able to chase 10,000, and your enemies will fall before you by the sword. That's awesome. The Lord says, you're going to be powerful against the enemy. You're going to be able to take the ground. The enemy's not going to be able to stand before you. So possibly giving Israel a little bit of grace here, that's the premise from which they are working. But there was a prerequisite that preceded the premise that we need to look at. There was a prerequisite, something that was required to make such military strength a reality in their lives. Go uh, to verse 3 as we see what it is. Leviticus 26, verse 3. The Lord says, If you will walk in my statutes and keep my commandments so as to carry them out, then, okay, look what we have. An if-then statement. The Lord says, If you will obey my commandments, then you will have tremendous military might. Now apply that to our lives. Our battles, not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and spiritual forces of wickedness in high places. We have a spiritual enemy. And this principle remains the same. If we walk in obedience to the Lord, we will have tremendous spiritual power in our lives. We will experience a great degree of victory and success over the enemy when we obey the Lord. Why? Because obedience inherently puts us in the place of blessing and power. Blessing and power is where obedience puts us. Disobedience puts us in the place of weakness and defeat. Look at the blessings that the Lord was willing to pour into their lives if they would simply obey him. It says in verse 4, Then I'm going to give you rains in their season, so that the land is going to produce its fruit, and the trees of the field will bear their fruit. Indeed, your threshing will last until the grape time, and then your grapes are going to last until the sowing time. In other words, you'll never be in want if you obey me, he said to his people. You will always have abundance and fullness. And then he says, you shall thus eat your food to the full and live securely in your land. Apply that to our lives. The Lord says that there is security that comes in our lives when we walk in obedience. That is a promise of Scripture. Now, this was to Israel, and the context is a little different, but the premise and the principle and the outworking of God's heart remains the same. That there comes abundance and fullness and blessing and security when we walk according to the Spirit, when we obey the Lord. Verse 6 says this, I shall also grant you peace in the land so that you may lie down with no one making you tremble. Isn't that good? He says, you're going to have peaceful nights if you obey me. Can anybody testify to the truth of that? When I'm not in rebellion, when I'm just obeying the Lord and I don't have secret sins going on and all these gross things and I'm just really loving and obeying as best I can by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. You know what? I sleep good at night. I rest at night. But I find that disobeying the Lord is burdensome. And it messes with my sleep, and it messes with my marriage, and it messes with my fathering, and it messes with my pastoring, and it messes with my relationships, and it messes with my relationship with my Jesus. And I love my Jesus. And I don't want to be separated from him. I don't want anything to come between me and him, but sin does that. 
And it's a wonderful gift of grace from God that we often have a disturbance in our peace when we're in, in, in rebellion. You know what I mean? That all of a sudden, there's just no peace anymore. Circumstances may have not changed. We have the same amount of money, the same family, the same amount of friends. But all of a sudden, just things aren't connecting for you. And sleep isn't what it ought to be. Okay, wait. Are you where the Lord wants you to be? Are you walking according to the Spirit? Or are you carrying out the desires of the flesh? The Word of God says, walk according to the Spirit, and you won't carry out the desires of the flesh. And then he says, I shall also eliminate harmful beasts from the land, and no sword will pass through your land. And you're going to chase your enemies, and they're going to fall before the sword. Five will chase a hundred, a hundred will chase ten thousand, and your enemies will fall before you by the sword. So I'm going to turn toward you, he says in verse 9, and I'm going to make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will confirm my covenant with you. And you're going to eat the old supply and clear out the old because there's going to be so many new and wonderful things. Moreover, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul will not reject you. I will also walk with you, and I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my people. Because I'm the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt so that you should not be their slaves. And I broke the bars of your yoke and made you walk upright. That's the heart of God for his people. That we would walk upright by his grace. That we would be secure and well and whole and rested and blessed. That's what God wants for his people. Just like we fathers want that for our children. That's what the father heart of God wants for you and I. Now, very practically speaking, obedience puts us in the place of blessing. The blessings are not performance-oriented. We do not earn them. Even our righteous deeds are as filthy rags before God. We do not earn the favor of God. He extends it through the person of Jesus Christ by grace. But we remain in the place of favor, of receiving it through obedience. It's very simple. You obey, you put yourself in the place of blessing. It's just like our kids. You know what I mean? If I say, son, I want you to sit down right here, and I'm going to give you some ice cream. At our house, nobody eats on the couch, okay? We have a white couch in our house. God knows why. We have a white couch in our house. Nobody eats on the couch. Son, you want ice cream? Come sit down at the table. If he obeys and comes and sits down at the table, he is putting himself in the place of blessing. And as a father, I am more than happy to bless him with that ice cream. He didn't earn it. Oh, son, you walk to the couch. I love you more than before. Here's some ice cream. It's not that. He didn't earn it. He simply walked into it. If he chooses to disobey me and stay on the couch, I will not give him the ice cream. I do not love him any less. I will not reject him, but I cannot give him ice cream on the couch. It makes a mess. Listen to me. Oftentimes, we rebel against the Lord and we're in the place where he doesn't want us to be and we say, Lord, what is wrong with my life and what are you doing to me? I want blessings. Lord, won't you bless me? And the Lord says, son, I want to bless you, but you've got to get in the place of blessings. I will not bless something I've already condemned in my word. Son, I've already told you, you don't get ice cream on the couch. If you stay on the couch, no ice cream. You come to the table and you will be blessed. The Lord is always beckoning us to the table. He prepares a banqueting table for us in the presence of our enemies. And he is beckoning us by the Spirit of God to the fullness and to the pleasures of it. So often we choose to remain over here and it's a ripoff, man. It's a ripoff. If you choose to remain over there, I want to tell you, 
I want to tell you, God doesn't love you any less. He loves you just the same. But you will experience less of him. And then it says in verse 14, but if you do not obey me, okay, then comes bad things. There's always consequences to disobedience. Now let's see those consequences unfold as we go back to Joshua in this specific context. Joshua chapter 7 again, verse 4. So about 3,000 men from the people went up there, but they fled from the men of Ai. And the men of Ai struck down about 36 of the men of Israel and pursued them from the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them down on the descent. So the hearts of the people melted and became like water. Wow, how quickly things changed for them. They had just had this incredible victory. They had experienced the power of God and the goodness of God and a move of God. They had just experienced it. They're just on the heels of it. And just moments later, it seems, they're in utter defeat. A number of them getting slaughtered, and they're running back down the hill. Wow. Only one thing changed that made the difference in their lives between victory and defeat. Sin. Sin entered into the equation. That's all that happened was there was now sin in the camp, and that made all the difference. And so they come running down off the mountaintop into the valley. This valley is later going to be called the Valley of Achor. Achor means in Hebrew, trouble. The Valley of Trouble. They're in trouble now. They're running from their enemies. They've turned tail. They're getting whooped up on. They're getting slaughtered. And they come back down to the valley. And the Lord names it for them the Valley of Trouble. They've gotten themselves in trouble. Now let me say this about valleys in the Christian life. The Christian life is made up of hills and valleys. What's neat is when we go to Israel in September, those of us that are going, we will see that the topography is such that it's a series of hills and valleys, very pronounced. And it's a wonderful analogy for the Christian life. The Christian life is a series of hills and valleys. And that's ordained by God. Part of the time as Christians, we experience mountaintop experiences. Amen? Those are wonderful. We're just loving the Lord and walking in victory and just enjoying who God is and just, yes, things are awesome. When you're in one of those times, you can know that there's always a valley coming. The valley is designed by the Lord. Why? In the valley now, just geographically and horticulturally speaking, in the valleys, like the Carpinteria Valley where this church is situated, in the valley is where the fruit is grown. You understand that? Nobody grows fruit on the mountaintop. The fruit is grown in the valley. What we're to do as Christians is bear much fruit. Jesus said, if, if you abide in me, if you stay connected with me on the mountains and in the valleys, you will bear much fruit. The fruit is developed in our lives in those valley times, just those difficult times that the Lord allows into our lives to refine us, to grow us, to stretch us. As it says in Romans 5, hey, we're stoked in hard times because we know that hard times bring about perseverance and perseverance proven character and proven character hope and hope does not disappoint. So it's not a realistic expectation to live on the mountaintop. God designs a Christian life with mountaintops and valleys. And those valleys are a good place of rich soil and fruitfulness. And they get us to a more meaningful experience at the next mountaintop. But then there's other valleys. These valleys are not ordained by God. These valleys are made by you and I. This is where we descend in defeat. Where we allow sin into the camp 
and the enemy is able to just whoop up on us. The enemy is just able to take advantage of us and do just what they did. And we descend down into this valley of defeat, the valley of trouble. And it says there that their hearts melted. Their hearts melted. Previously, it was the enemies whose hearts was melting in, in chapter 5, verse 1, right? Now their heart is melting so quickly, they've gone from victory to defeat. And what made the difference was purposeful rebellion in the heart of one of them. Some of you today, you're in the valley of trouble. It's not God-ordained. God doesn't want you to be there. You've made some bad calls, some bad decisions. You allowed some sin in, and now you're in the valley of trouble. Hey, guess what? Jesus loves to pull people out of the miry clay. Jesus loves to reach down in the valley and to pull you out and to bring you back into a place of victory. That's what he's all about. If you're in the valley today, God is not mad with you. It's actually theologically impossible for God to be mad with you because of the atonement of Jesus Christ. He was a propitious sacrifice, which means he satisfied the wrath and anger and judgment and standard of God. So now our standing, Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says, is in grace before God. He loves you. He adores you. He wants to work good things and blessings into your life. And he wants to pull you out of the valley of trouble if you're there today. He wants to pull you out and bring you back into victory. But sometimes in the valley of trouble, we get a little disillusioned and a little dismayed. And we see that happening to Israel as we move on in verse 6. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening, both he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. Now that sounds weird to you and I, tearing the clothes and putting dust on their heads. Uh, the Jews have done it for thousands of years, and the Jews still do it today. It means I'm despairing. I'm absolutely despairing. I'm grieving. I'm mourning. I'm undone. They did it in biblical times, and they do it today. Observant Jews, they will tear their clothes, and they'll put dirt on their head, synonymous with sackcloth and ashes, just saying, I'm just miserable. Things are wrong. Things are bad. It's an outward display of inward turmoil, okay? So they're experiencing turmoil now in the midst of this defeat. Verse 7, and Joshua said, alas, O Lord God, why did you bring us over the Jordan? Just to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites? Just to destroy us? If only we'd been willing to dwell on the other side of the Jordan. Oh, Lord, what can I say since Israel's turned their back from their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land are going to hear about it, and they will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And now, Lord, what are you going to do for your great name? Uh-oh. Joshua, this is not a good way to speak to the Lord. <laughs> Joshua begins to do something here that humanity does so often in their grief, but it's so very wrong. He begins to blame and second-guess the Lord. He begins to blame and second-guess the Lord. He says, Lord, what is your problem? Why did you bring us over the Jordan in the first place? Just to destroy us here? Lord, what is the deal? It would have been better if we just stayed on the other side of the Jordan. Whoa, 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 whoa. Wait a minute, Josh. The other side of the Jordan was a place of wandering. It was the wilderness. It was dryness, brokenness. And now the Lord has brought you into the prophetic fulfillments of fullness. 
But you see what happens when we begin to grumble and complain against the Lord? It clouds our perception. That's why the New Testament says, do everything without grumbling or complaining. It clouds our perception. We no longer see relationships clearly. We no longer see the Lord clearly. We no longer understand clearly the program of God. Joshua knew darn well what the Lord was doing. He knew that they were in the right place and in a good place. And he begins immediately in his human despair to blame the Lord and then to second guess God's goodness. It's a dangerous place to be. Look what happens. I love what the Lord says to him in verse 10. So the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Don't you love that? Joshua's lying down, he's grumbling, he's crying, he's complaining, moaning, groaning. Lord, what's your deal? You just want to kill us, Lord. You don't like us. We should have stayed over in slavery. And the Lord goes, you know what, Joshua? Get up. I just imagine the Lord is saying, I heard enough of this whining and complaining and moaning and groaning when you were wandering in the wilderness. This is why I told you to be quiet when you marched around Jericho. <laughs> Joshua Get up. Why is it that you're on your face? I think he asked that question because he wants Joshua to think about it. Joshua, what's really going on here? Why are you on your face? Why are you in the valley of trouble? Why are you currently in a place of despair? Now look what happens. The Lord reveals it to him in verse 11. Israel has sinned. There it is. He was blaming the Lord. The problem was them. The problem wasn't the Lord. So often things go wrong in our lives, and it's a result of some sinful choice. And you know what? The Lord redeems, and the Lord renews, and the Lord restores. But we've got to be very careful to pursue the Lord from a place of humility. You know what I mean? Not, Lord, what's wrong with you? But, hey, Lord, have I blown it in some way? Lord, is there some way where I've wandered? Lord, here's a, here's a good prayer to pray, like the psalmist prayed. Lord, search my heart and see if there be any wayward thing within it. That's a good prayer. And so the Lord reveals to him. And, and the Lord's good to do that. The Holy Spirit will always do that. Some of you, you know, you're going to do that today. I did it at the last service. You're going to come forward and you're going to get on the carpet. You're going to say, hey, Lord, show me where I'm blowing it. Because guess what? There's always somewhere. And the Lord is so kind, he shows us just enough, you know what I mean, to get us pursuing after him. If the Lord showed us all the places that we were blowing it at once, we'd drop dead on the spot, man. You couldn't handle that gig. The Lord is so kind to just reveal. And so he reveals in his kindness to Israel. He says to Joshua, Israel has sinned. Continuing on, verse 11, they've also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. They've even taken some of the things under the ban and have stolen and deceived. Moreover, they have also put them among their own things. So he says, get up, what are you doing? The problem is not with me, Joshua. The problem is with y'all. And you have sinned and transgressed. Now, to sin means to miss the mark. I'm sure you heard this, but it's an old archery term. And an and archer was shooting, and there was a judge, and he shot, and he missed the bullseye, and the judge would say, sinner! It means to miss the mark. That's what it means. That's where we get that phraseology from. But to transgress means to cross the line. There's a difference. Sin is to miss the mark. Man, I shot for it, and, and I fell short. So it talks about in Romans 3 where it says, we all fall short of the glory of God. But to transgress now is not to just fall short or miss the mark, but it's to willfully rebel. It's to say, I see the line, and I don't care. I'm crossing it. 
And the Lord said, Israel's both sinned and they've transgressed and they've crossed the line. We need to understand that these are the things that bring turmoil and brokenness into our lives. Again, the Lord's warnings are not arbitrary. When he says don't do something, it's because there's consequences and he's a merciful God. And transgression and sin wreaks all kind of havoc in our lives. And, and for Israel, it was almost devastating. Look what it says in verse 12. Therefore, the sons of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies, for they've become accursed. I'm not going to be with you anymore unless you destroy the things under the ban from your midst. Wow. That is a sobering and radical verse. Because of the sin and the transgression, you cannot stand before your enemies. Listen to that very carefully. It was physically, literally, it was spiritually, it was absolutely impossible for them to experience victory while they were in rebellion. They could not get the victory over the enemy while they were in rebellion. They wanted victory. They had tasted victory. They wanted to stay in that place. But he said, you cannot stand before your enemies with rebellion in your heart. Now, that's very poignant for you and I. Too often, the Christian life is more up and down than it ought to be. Too many defeats. And, and it should not be characterized by defeat and despair. It should be characterized by joy and victory, even in the difficult times as we repent and pursue the Lord. And so we take stock now and say, is there any sin that I've allowed in, that I've pursued, any transgression that has brought me into a place of defeat so that I can't stand before the schemes of the enemy? I mean, the enemy was just whooping up on him. You say, okay, yeah, there really is in my life. Yeah, I'm getting worked. Okay, so what do I do? Let's go to Ephesians chapter 6. Keep your finger right here. Go to Ephesians chapter 6, as I hope to give you some tools here. Ephesians chapter 6, very important passage, giving us some tools for walking in victory. Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. There's strategy number one. We cannot rely on our own strength. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Corinthians says, take heed of any of you think you are strong, lest you fall. We've got to come before the Lord in a place of humility. If Israel had ran up the hill to Ai in humility, they would not be coming down in shame. <clears throat> We've got to approach life from a place of humility. Lord, I need your strength. And that's wonderful because that's an unending reserve of strength. That, that's a, a, an inexhaustible amount of strength when we could be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Verse 11, Put on the full armor of God. Okay, cool. Put on the armor of God. What is it? Well, first of all, it tells you what it'll do for you. That you may be able to stand firm. You ought to circle that. Stand firm against the schemes of the devil. You know about the schemes of the devil, don't you? Jesus said in John 10.10 10, that the enemy, Satan, comes to steal and kill and destroy. Okay? Put on the full armor of God that you can stand firm. There's a wonderful promise in James 4.7. What does it say? Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Stand firm and he'll flee from you. The reason why sometimes he gains a ground in our lives is because we give in too quick. 
the enemy's always going to come against the Christian. No, duh, right? He's always going to come against the child of God. But, but, but oftentimes we just give in so quick. Oh no, the schemes of the enemy, the attack of the enemy. Oh no, okay. And we just experience defeat. There's a promise in the Bible that if you will stand firm, Hold your ground according to the person of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit and according to the word of God. If you will just continue to stand and resist the devil, he will flee from you. That is the word of God. But there's a reverse side to that coin. Give in to the devil and he'll cling to you. Resist and he'll flee. Give in, he's all too happy to cling. So we're given some tools here says in verse 12, the reality of our battle, it's not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the powers and against the world forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having, here's how you do it, girded your loins with truth. Girded your loins with truth. Girding your loins, that, that's like a belt. It's the idea of wearing the belt of truth. A belt is what you kind of cinch your whole gig together with. You know what I mean? In those days, uh, they wore like these flowy gowns and they would gird themselves up so they would tie a sash or something around the middle and it would hold their whole little gig together. Our little gig is held together by the truth of the Word of God. We are to gird ourselves in truth. It is to be this thing that binds us up securely, that holds us together, is the truth of the Word of God. Listen, are things coming unbound in your life? Are they beginning to fall apart? I would suggest you need more of the Word of God in your life. Really. So it says, to be able to stand firm, you've got to be girded with the truth. And then it says, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate was that thing for a soldier that protected his vital organs, Right? And most importantly, his heart. The breastplate of righteousness. It's this fact that we have been made righteous before God by the blood of Jesus Christ. That because of Jesus' sacrifice and his perfect life accredited to our account, God now looks at us and says, you are pure and spotless and altogether righteous in my sight. We are to put that reality on like a breastplate that, that guards our vital organs, that guards our heart, because the enemy will always come against the heart to condemn, to make you heavy-hearted, to try to bring you to shame. And, and what protects us from that and allows us to stand firm is, no, I've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ. If any man or woman is in Christ, they are a brand new creature. God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin on my behalf that I might become the righteousness of God. I am the pure and spotless bride without blemish or wrinkle. I'm already seated in the heavenlies with Christ Jesus. I am more than a conqueror because of what he has done for me. Mm. And that then allows us to stand firm and it protects our vitals against the schemes of the enemy. Now there's more. It says that we are to shod our feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. The gospel is what makes peace between us and God. And we shod our feet with it. In other words, it's the shoes that we put on our feet. It's what we walk in. We walk in the gospel of grace. It's how we're able to move forward is by the gospel of grace by which we have peace with Jesus Christ. And then it says in verse 16, in addition to all these things, take up the shield of faith with which you will be able 
clear language, with which you will absolutely be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one. You know what the shield of faith is? The shield of faith is made real in our lives when we obey the word of God. That's how we are shielded because remember, true faith is active, always. True faith is always active. James chapter 2, James says, don't tell me about your faith unless I can see some fruit. Real faith always has an outflow. And so that shield of faith is built into our lives when we obey the word of God. That shields us from the schemes of the enemy and from his fiery darts. If, we're, if we disobey the Lord, then we let down the shield of faith and we open ourselves to the schemes of the enemy. And that breaks the heart of the Lord. He defeated Satan on the cross. Don't leave yourself open to a defeated foe. That's just silly. The next verse Verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation. It's that which guards our mind by the fact that we absolutely have been saved. Because the enemy comes with doubts. The enemy likes you to think, I don't know if that was real. I mean, I, you know, I, I said the prayer and I made a profession of faith and this and that, but I don't know if it was real. I don't know if I'm actually going to heaven. I don't know if God is real. I don't know if forgiveness is real. The enemy loves to sow seeds of doubt. I don't know if the Lord understands. I don't know if he'll forgive. I don't know if his people will accept me. The enemy is an enemy of doubt. We put the helmet of salvation on. It just simplifies things. Here's what the helmet of salvation says. Hey, dude, mellow out. You've been saved. All right, it's done. Tetelestai, paid in full. It is finished. Quit tripping out. Calamate, mijo. Calm down. Everything's cool. You've been saved. Amen? Amen? That's the helmet of salvation. And then it says, take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, the offensive weapon of the sword of the Spirit. And then, with all prayer and petition, the other offensive weapon, pray all the time in the Spirit. With this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Sin brings us into a place of defeat. Standing firm allows us to remain, abide in, dwell in, meno in the Greek, to dwell, hang out, loiter in the place of victory. Go back to Joshua now. Joshua chapter 7, reading one more time, verse 12. Therefore, the sons of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies, for they have become accursed. Very quickly, that word accursed in Hebrew means devoted to destruction. Isn't that radical? Because of their sin, they were devoted to destruction. And then it says, I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy the things that are under the ban from your midst. For the Christian, how this applies, the Lord saying, I will not be with you. Our sin makes a separation between us and God. When we walk according to the Spirit and obedience, there's intimacy. When we sin, there's a separation. Guess who moved? It was us. The Lord didn't move. We moved. Our sin brings a separation. But aren't you stoked on, on 1 John 1.9? I love 1 John 1.9. Confess your sins to God. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And then it restores intimacy, but it requires confession, repentance, that we get clean before the Lord. And so that's what had to happen right here. It says, 
I will not be with you unless you destroy the things that are under the ban. Verse 13, get up, consecrate the people, and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus the Lord, the God of Israel says, there are things under the ban in your midst, O Israel. You simply can't stand before your enemies until you have removed the things under the ban from your midst. There's a prescription. There is the way out of the valley of trouble is to just get rid of those things. Hebrews chapter 12 said, let us lay aside the sin that so easily entangles us. We've just got to get rid of it. The Lord gave him the solution. There was no other solution. It couldn't be a partial purging of the sin. It couldn't be just a little letting. It had to go. The whole thing had to go. So many times as Christians, we're just not willing to do that. We don't want to completely let it go. And then we wonder, why another defeat? Why another defeat? We didn't do the things that were necessary to get it out of our reality, out of our life, out of our way. Romans 13 says this, make no provision for the flesh. Is there something that is causing you trouble? Something that's bringing you into the valley of trouble? Get rid of it. Don't make provision for your flesh. Whatever it is, however gnarly it is, get rid of it. Listen to me. We believers, brothers and sisters, we have to be ruthless with sin in our lives because sin will always be ruthless with us. It is absolutely ruthless with us. So why wouldn't we be ruthless with it? Remember what God said to Cain in Genesis 4-7 when Cain was thinking about killing his brother? God said, Cain... Sin is crouching at your door. And its desire is for you. That word desire in Hebrew means it's desiring to rule you. Cain, sin is at your door. It's crouching there. It's ready to pounce. It desires to rule over you. And then he said at the end of verse 7, Genesis 4, but you must be master over it. Now, the mastery of sin in our lives is removed by the cross of Jesus Christ. It says in Romans 6, our old self was crucified with him that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Look at the wonders of the cross of Jesus Christ. Is that he came and defeated the enemy for us. Cain had to deal with it in and of himself. Don't let it master you. You, you got to deal with this, Cain. But for us, Jesus Christ came and dealt with it upon the cross. And so sin is no longer master over us. And so it says in Romans 6, simply don't let sin rule in your mortal body. Don't let it rule. The biggest lie in the Christian life is I simply can't help myself. Hey, listen, I know I know it's hard. I know it's an addiction. I know it's got a hook in your flesh. I know it's powerful. I know it feels like you could never get free, but we cannot give up hope in the promises of God and the person of Jesus Christ. It says that sin has been defeated, no longer to be master over us. There is the possibility, the reality, the hope of victory in Jesus Christ. Don't give up hope. God is absolutely able to deliver you into victory, but you've got to be ruthless with sin. You've got to be ruthless with it because it wants to be ruthless with you. Jesus Christ gives us the victory. And now as we begin to finish, the Lord is going to reveal the sin 
They're going to cast lots, a sort of lottery system, but the Lord would be in control of it to reveal who was sinning. Verse 14. In the morning then you shall come near by your tribes, and it shall be that the tribe which the Lord takes by lot shall come near by families, and then the family which the Lord takes shall come near by households, and the household which the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And it shall be that the one who is taken with the things under the ban shall be burned with fire. He and all that belongs to him because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has committed a disgraceful thing in Israel. So Joshua got up early in the morning and brought Israel near by tribes. Then the tribe of Judah was selected. And he brought the family of Judah near and he took the family of the Zerahites. And he brought the family of the Zerahites near man by man and Zabdi was taken. And he brought his household near man by man and Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah from the tribe of Judah, was taken. By way of compassion, we can all understand how Achan must have felt. There's not a one of us that isn't afraid of being found out, so to speak. The way Achan's heart must have been coming out of his chest as he saw oh no, they've got the right tribe. I'm from the tribe of Judah. Wow, they've got the right family of the Zerahites. There's my grandfather. There's my dad. And it was him. We can all understand the horror that he must have felt, but, but wait a minute. There's something a, a little bit askew in our hearts about that, I think. The problem is that we're more terrified of being found out by men than we are of offending a holy God. God knew the whole time. That was the issue. That was the problem. The sin was against God. God knew the whole time. The problem was Achan didn't, didn't seem to have a, a bother with that. That didn't bother him. He was terrified, as we would be, about men finding out. But the Lord is the one who knew. And you know what? Who cares what people think? They're just as messed up as you are. But the Lord is the one with whom we have to do. All things are laid bare before his eyes. But what I love is a picture of Jesus that we see in the person of Joshua in the next verse. In verse 19, Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, my son, I'm begging you, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give praise to him. Tell me what you've done. Don't hide it from me. I love the picture of compassion. You know, Joshua is an Old Testament type of Jesus. And Jesus is so compassionate with you and I. He doesn't come to us with a big stick. We're in the age of grace. He comes to us with love and mercy. And he says, my son. Even Judas, when Judas became, came to betray the Lord, what did the Lord say? Friend, what have you come to do? He called him friend until the last moment. The Lord extends the hand of friendship and the hand of a father to you and I as exhibited here in Joshua. Hey, just tell me what it was you did. And then we have the confession from Achan. Verse 20, so Achan answered Joshua and said, truly, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. And this is what I did. Notice this progression, verse 21. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar. A mantle from Shinar is a Babylonian coat. They were very in at that time. It was a beautiful coat from Babylon. Uh, 
When I saw that beautiful coat from Babylon and 200 shekels of silver and, and that bar of gold and 50 shekels in weight, well, then I coveted them and then I took them and then concealed them in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath it. There is a progression of sin, too familiar to each one of us, seen throughout the Bible. He saw. Everything would have been cool if he saw, kind of like Joseph saw, and then fled. But he saw, and he remained. There's where trouble enters. He saw, and he looked again. He saw, and he gazed. He said, I saw, and he didn't flee, so he coveted. And if you covet long enough, you're going to take. And he took it, and he hid it. The progression of sin. Verse 22, so Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent and behold, it was concealed in his tent with the silver underneath it. And they took them from inside the tent and brought them to Joshua and all the sons of Israel and they poured them out before the Lord. He took these things, he rebelled against the Lord and he hid it underneath his tent in the soil. It was a little secret sin. Now the New Testament calls our bodies a tent, a temporary dwelling place. And Jesus Christ in the parable of the soils referred to our hearts as a soil of sorts. So this is a very poignant picture of secret sin in our hearts, in our tent, in the soil therein. We love to just bury things in there. And you know what? Sometimes we think this, hey, if nobody knows, then it's probably not sin. That's just wrong thinking, man. It was hidden there. The Bible says this. I want to give you another tool. Psalm 119, hide the word of God in your heart that you may not sin against God. We hide sin in our heart and it causes a separation and brokenness and heartache and heartbreak and it messes with our relationships and our wellness and our wholeness. We hide the word of God in our hearts and it builds us up and it heals us and it begins to make us whole and it sets relationships right. So there's another tool. Hide the word of God in your heart, not sin. And, and what had to happen was it had to be confessed and then it was discovered. They went and they found it, they dug it up and then they poured it out before the Lord. There it is. Okay, so you're just like me. You've got some sin in your heart and it ought not to be there. What do you do? Confess it to God today. It's already been discovered by the Holy Spirit. Hello, he already knows. Might as well confess it and pour it out before the Lord. That's what they did with this. They poured it out before the Lord. Now, what happens next is absolutely horrific. We're going to finish with this. It's absolutely horrific. It's going to show to us very powerfully the seriousness of sin before God. We don't see sin this way, so don't expect to understand it. We don't see this sin. We don't see sin this way, so don't expect to understand it. This is how God sees sin. The wages of sin is death. I'll tell you this. God now deals with his people differently because of the cross of Jesus Christ. The principle remains the same. Sin is just as heinous, just as destructive, just as deadly in the sight and the heart of God. The principle remains. The protocol of God has changed because there's now forgiveness through the cross of Jesus Christ. But look at the reality of our fate if we didn't have Jesus Christ. Verse 24, Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver, the coat that he loved so much, the bar of gold, and his sons and his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, everything that belonged to him. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor, or trouble. And Joshua said, 
why have you troubled us? The Lord's going to trouble you this day. And all Israel stoned them with stones, and they burned them with fire after they had been stoned with stones. And they raised up over him a great heap of stones that stands to this day. And the Lord then turned from his fierceness of his anger. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the Valley of Achor, or trouble, to this day. It's no surprise, really. The New Testament says the wages of sin is death. It's just that we live in the age of grace. We don't ever see it. Thank you, Jesus. But there is something that's called the second death. It's eternal separation from God. It's a place called hell, where there's a burning of fire and weeping and gnashing of teeth and the worm that never dies. That's what sin earns us. We don't understand it because we don't see sin because we're not holy like God. But there is forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Not one of us ever has to experience the horrors of sin in this way because Jesus endured the horror of the cross in our place. And so there's redemption now. There's restoration now. There's forgiveness now. And there's healing. We're just as guilty as Achan. Achan's sin wasn't even that bad compared to some of my sin. Because of Jesus Christ, there's forgiveness and healing and restoration and newness and the possibility and reality of victory. And the Lord wants you to experience blessing in your life. And so Jesus did on the cross what Achan had to do for himself. Jesus did it for you. Jesus did it for me. For Achan, everything he had was burned. Compare that to Rahab. Remember Rahab? said in the previous chapter, everything she had was saved. Achan and his family and all his stuff was burned. For Rahab, Rahab and her family and all her stuff was saved. It is better to be a repentant prostitute than a soldier with secret sin. The Lord is merciful. We're all prostitutes to sin. He's a forgiver. He wants to forgive, he wants to store, he wants to set right. Jesus Christ paid the price to bring us out of the valley of trouble. I love what it says in Hosea chapter 2, verse 15, about the millennial kingdom. When the Lord returns and restores Israel, it says this about the valley of trouble. It says, Then I will give Israel her vineyards from there, and the valley of Achor as a door of hope. Wow, look what the Lord does. The Lord takes the valley of trouble that we make for ourselves and he opens up through Jesus Christ a door of hope, a way of escape. No temptation has overcome you except for that which is common to man, but God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond that which you are able to endure, but with the temptation will provide the way out also. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says... Jesus Christ wants to meet you in the place of shame and open up a door of hope. Isn't that what he did for the woman who was caught in adultery in John chapter 8? She was in the valley of trouble and it was her own doing and she deserved whatever would come upon her. But there was Jesus and he opened the door of hope to her and said, I don't condemn you. Go your way and don't sin anymore. Are you in a place of shame? Jesus Christ loves you. He wants to open up a door of hope to your life today. All you got to do, confess it and cut it off and watch the victory of the Lord. Amen. 
Lord, thank you so much. Lord, there's a bunch of valleys of troubles in this place today. Holy Spirit, come and open wide the door of hope unto us. The possibility of newness through Jesus Christ. Lord, if anyone is here and they've never asked you to save them, I pray that today in the quietness of their heart, they just cry out to you and say, Lord, save me. I'm a sinner. I don't understand everything about you, but I know that you're the Savior and I need forgiveness. They would cry that out in their hearts. And that we as Christians, Lord, help us to get rid of the secret sins. Thank you that we just need to come before you and just throw them down, just lay them aside. Thank you that you meet us in the place of shame. Lord, some of us today, we're so ashamed of the things that we've done. You're so merciful and good. Would you come and place your hand on the shamed ones, Lord? Thank you that there is no shame, no condemnation for those who are in you. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Lord, the things that we broke, would you make them brand new? The things that we've dirtied and muddied up, Lord, would you clean them and firm them up? Lord, the things that we have made perverse, would you cause to be righteous through the power of the cross? Come to Jesus today, people. He's the only one that can set you free. There's an unlimited resource of grace and love and mercy in him today. Whatever that means for you, come to him today. On your face, through communion, praying with your friends, praying with the prayer team. Come to the Lord today.